Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, coming to you from the hot, hot city. Very early in the morning, because we are recording this before breakfast today. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? I'm coming to you from the hot, hot, slightly smaller city of Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still hot, hot. And yeah, it's our last episode before our summer break, which is exciting for us. Maybe not so exciting for our (laughs) listeners, but (laughs) I'm looking forward to the break. And um, it's a very, very summery day to record this. So that feels appropriate, doesn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. But I'm doing well. I love hot weather. Love it. Love sunshine. So I've been trying to soak it up. And actually, we we were talking just before the call about that, like, almost desperation to the point of it being a problem that I feel like I need to utilize every single second of sunshine that I have and it becomes a kind of mania when when the weather is nice like this so yeah, yeah. um so I mean ups and downs even even <laughs> I honestly it's the most British feeling available sunshine yeah. panic like hot weather anxiety how are you oh I'm good I yeah similarly just like over the moon at this weather I feel like we really 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 needed it after everything and I just got back from a little trip away, which was, God, amazing. Um, We went to the Y Valley and people told me that it would be a mystical and kind of extraordinary experience. And I was very open to that, but I was also, I'm going to admit, a bit just sad that I wasn't going to the sea because I tried to go to the sea as much as I can. Um, But Cornwall was too far and too expensive this trip. But, you know, there was a a river in the Y Valley I knew. And I was like, as long as I get to put my body in a body of water, I'll be fine. And let me tell you, my prejudice was misplaced. (laughs) The Y Valley is extraordinary. We stayed in a little cottage that was, you could walk straight out into, into really ancient forest we did some forest bathing. We communed with some very ancient spirits. Um, I swam in the river. I bought a couple of old poetry books in Hay, including a really old edition of Coney Island of the Mind by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, which I'm incredibly excited about because it comes with a CD of him performing. I mean, I have no idea where I'm going to play the CD because I don't have a player <laughs> and it feels extremely retro, but yeah, it's good. So, And I think just the importance of going to somewhere that isn't the place that you live and work every day is just so important if you can do it, isn't it? And I'm reminded every time I do it, like, wow, when we are spending all our time at home and our professional identity and our like home identity are just merged, to just go and put your body in a different space is like very revitalizing. Yeah, yeah, it was the same in the Scottish Highlands. It was completely revitalizing just to be in a different place. And I felt so grateful that I could do that. Those views, my God, looked extraordinary. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's a place out of it, truly out of time. It mm. feels like you're walking with the dinosaurs or something like that. Um, really amazing. So, yeah. Anyway, here we are back working. <laughs> <laughs> no, it. no, we love we love doing literary friction. It's it's never worked to us. Um, no, this is the good bit. Yeah, the, the recording is always good, isn't it? Before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month and have the chance to suggest 
themes. This month's Patreon mini-sode will be released in a week's time and will be the second of our two-parter about how we each got into our careers. And this time, Octavia is in the hot seat. (laughs) Very hot. Uh, Yeah, very hot. I will be relentless with my questions. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're curious to know about how she consciously uncoupled from academia and also about the very exciting book that Canongate will be publishing that she is writing, then head to our Patreon to subscribe. And if you're not a patron, this mini-sode is going to be our last episode before we take our summer break, as Carrie said, but we will be putting something out from the archive next month. So the line will not go completely dead. And then... We're going to be back with a really extremely banging autumn program, kicking off with the excellent Sean Fay, who's joining us to talk about her new book, The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice. So, you know, we're coming back with something pretty brilliant. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to her about that book. But for now, welcome to Minisode 23, and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. That's right. But for now, we're going to talk about the ocean. This mini-sode is an ode to the ocean. It's hot, the sky is blue, the air smells of summer. I don't think many of us here anyway feel quite as carefree as we'd like because contrary to what the British government would have us believe, the pandemic is very much not over. But it is summer and we deserve a break. So we wanted this last mini-sode of the season to be a little ode to one of our favourite things about the summer, which is just the sea, the ocean, swimming in it, gazing at it, dreaming about it, remembering it, trips there, you know, the nostalgia of it, the whole thing, that shimmery, glittery blue and green landscape that stretches all the way to the horizon and inspires so many of us really, come rain or shine, but you know, especially shine. Writers and poets, obviously, and musicians have been enthralled by the ocean forever. And I just, let's start with that. Like, what is it about the ocean that captivates us so much as human beings, do you think? Yeah, I mean, so many different things, isn't it? And Mm. I think even what I've just said is part of it, that the ocean contains so much. You know, it is kind of endless possibility. It is unknowability. We are always captivated by things that are bigger and deeper and much more unknowable than the lives in which we live. And I think that the ocean is kind of the perfect symbol of that. It's this giant body of water that stretches around the world with hidden depths that are completely inaccessible to us. And I think the human mind gravitates towards that possibility and also that danger. It's certainly how I feel about the ocean. Yeah, I think it's true. It's it's very grounding to spend time beside it and in front of it and in it because you just, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. You're just reminded of your utter insignificance being faced mm. with this thing that you you can't win against. You know, you're not going to go to battle with it. I found myself thinking about actually watching that absolutely stupid billionaire get inside his penis and shoot himself into space. And I was thinking, you could, you know, you could also go down into the sea. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that that conquering space has this macho history and lineage, and the ocean. It seems to be, uh, it occupies a slightly different space, and I don't know why because it's just as unknowable, right? I feel like we know more about the moon than we know about the very deepest parts yeah. of the ocean. 
It's true. It's true. Maybe there's kind of almost more of a humility that you need to mm. venture to the depths of the ocean. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you you have to respect the sea and, and all the seafarers I have known, that's their main thing. You know, you respect the sea. You know that you can't enforce your will on the ocean. Mm. The, the way to survive the sea is to be led by the sea and the weather and you know, the people who find themselves in terrible trouble tend to be the people who think that they can use their human wiles to, yeah, conquer this thing that is a completely unfathomable, as you said, entity. And it's totally. it's extraordinary. It's really, it is like having a bit of outer space right on our planet. And I think that experience as well, when you're at the water's edge of just being at the edge is really electrifying isn't it there's no yeah. you can't really you get that feeling I suppose if you climb high mountains I'm not a mountaineer I've never really gone to super super high but at least when you're up a, a high, high mountain you can look down over land that is recognizable to you you can kind of map the landscape in your mind whereas you look out at the sea and you just cannot do that <laughs> yeah yeah it's a threshold which is again very powerful. I was also thinking about just the sensorial experience of being near the sea, which I think is part of it. Um, yeah. Because you can, when I say think about the sea, it's one of the most powerful sensorial experiences that we can recall, at least for me. You know, when I say think about the sea, you, you can feel it and you can smell it. And you think about the cries of seagulls and the taste of salt, the feeling of sand. It's, it's such an ev evocative place as well. Yeah, and totally unique, right? So what is your personal relationship to the ocean? What does it mean to you, Carrie Plitt? Well, I, as you know, grew up very close to the ocean in Massachusetts. And so it was a big part of my upbringing. And that was, you know, summer days at the beach, spent a lot of time at the beach. When I became a teenager, we used to just drive to the beach and hang out and have bonfires and things like that. So I feel like it was a very constant presence in my life. And I think one of the most magical nights of my life was on a very, very warm summer evening when my friends and I went skinny dipping at Singing Beach um, in Manchester by the sea. And there was bioluminescence in the water, which I didn't even know happened wow. on the East Coast of the United States. And it was literally, you would swim and there were these little planktons lighting up around you. And it was like, yeah, I maybe it was a dream. Maybe it didn't happen. I don't know. But anyway, the sea was a big, big part of my life as a kid. And it's so interesting because since I moved to the UK, I haven't been living anywhere near the sea, despite being on an island in which the sea is very accessible. So yes, I've I've come to know rivers very well. Honestly, I'm surprised by how much I don't mind as much that I'm near rivers. I love being near water, but I love the river in Oxford. And I don't find myself, I feel like even you feel this, like you need to go to the sea every so often, you need to be near the sea. Mm. And I don't, I maybe I don't feel that as much. I don't know. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I do. I, I feel very primarily connected to it. And if I don't go for a while, it really, really saddens me. And maybe that's because I didn't grow up near it. So it was always something I longed for and really got into that pattern of 
needing to go you know maybe there's something in the fact that it was very accessible to you for a lot of your life that you Mm. don't feel that you know a bit like we were talking about the way that Brits relate to sunshine (laughs) and (laughs) Californians probably don't right like I'm sure if a Californian moved to the UK they might really miss the sunshine but they'd also I don't know do you know what I mean yeah you Um, store it up inside you or something. yeah exactly like Like you don't have a scarcity relationship with it and I think that's that's possibly it. I mean, I yeah, the sea is very, very important to me. I spent a lot of time by the sea as a kid, but not in the UK. My parents were really big travelers. And every summer we would go to France and they would rent a place and we would spend the summer there. So I know the southern coast of France very well and the western, the, like around Bordeaux and everything. I went, spent a lot of time there. And then we lived in Hong Kong for a while. So that was a very sea-based time. I spent a lot of time on little junk boats crossing the harbour over to Kowloon and all of that. And then I spend a lot of time in Cornwall and and swim in the sea at every opportunity I can. I don't know, I find my body responds extremely well to the sea. Just everything, my skin loves it, my muscles and bones love it. I feel better when I'm in it, even if it's February. <laughs> and I really, really wanted to live by the sea. And I really, I really wanted to, to try and move to Cornwall and then obviously realized that that was a terrible idea for me because A, I can't drive and B, it's seven hours from London and my life is very much here and I'm not ready to kind of become a lonely lighthouse. But I moved to Margate for that reason. And I swam in the sea an enormous amount when I lived there. And it was really, I cherished that time of having a daily a daily practice of spending time with the sea, whether it was like going for a long walk along the beach or getting in the water myself. Um, And I feel, yeah, I feel the, I do feel the lack of it in my life at the moment. I do, but I'm hopefully going to swim in it on Friday because I'm going to visit a friend in Rye and we're going to go and get in the water. So excellent. Yes. I'm happy for you. There is something about your body being in water and maybe that's part of that allure of the sea. I feel, I feel that too, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big swimmer. Although I don't love like swimming laps or anything. I just like getting my body into water. Yeah. Um, And I think the salty sea, especially the buoyancy of that has a very particular feeling. Yeah, it's amazing. Also, my hair looks so much better with salt water in it. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) We used to call that sexy beachy hair. Oh, I love sexy beachy hair. (laughs) I would have sexy beachy hair. Okay, here's a confession. I actually have a salt water spray that I sometimes use in my hair that is not seawater. It's like some fancy, I don't know what it's got in it. It makes my hands sticky. It's not the greatest, but uh, that's how far I'll go to achieve that sexy beachy look. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth it. It is worth it, I think. (laughs) Eddie bought some of that beach salt spray stuff and I ran out of my hair gel and I've been using it in my hair. So it's actually in my hair right now. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Love it. Excellent. Very topical, babe. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Really interesting too. So we we both have established that we love being in the sea and by the sea and thinking about the sea. But what about reading about the sea? Like, do, do you love reading about it? Do you have any favorite books or poems or anything about the sea? Yeah, I think I do. Interestingly, one of the big differences between the UK um, and the US is that we call the sea the ocean. And I guess it makes sense in terms of what we have access to in terms of what's at the beaches you know when you go to the beach in Massachusetts you look out at the Atlantic Ocean there's kind of nothing between you and and the UK um but I always think the sea sounds so neutered to me in some ways I don't know 
just thinking about language. Yeah. Um, But I say it now because I've been here for so long. But on the subject of reading, when I was thinking about it, I was like, yes, I love reading about the sea. And then I was thinking about all the classics about the sea and I hadn't read any of them. So I I don't know how much I really do. You know, Moby Dick, which I always keep meaning to read but haven't read. The Old Man in the Sea, The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch. My mom loves those Master and Commander books. Babe, uh, they were my dad's favorite. Oh, uh, they sound great, actually. They She's are like, actually kind of great. I read quite a lot of them to him when he was ill. And I mean, uh, yeah, the writing is great. They're very compelling. Yeah. What she was saying is it's about this central relationship between two men. Like yeah. one of them is a doctor. Kind of like Kirk and Spock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort yeah. of this quite an intellectual bond, but it's actually like deep emotion. Yeah, <laughs> classic. <laughs> um, but anyway, haven't read any of those books. I don't know if you have. I tried to read The Sea by John Banville when I was working on this um, opera commission I was writing the libretto for, and it's called The Other Side of the Sea, and it is very much about... Um, the sea and it's about split identities and so when I was getting into the headspace for writing that piece I was trying to read a lot of books about the sea that maybe I hadn't read and someone recommended The Sea by John Banville and I was like cool great gonna get into it went to it with a lot of open-minded like uh, I really wanted to love it because this person went on about how great it was and I just I found it extremely boring Really, I tried. I mean, the writing is evidently very, very accomplished, but I got about... <laughs> Such a burn. <laughs> I'm not going to say he's a bad writer because he's not a bad writer, but it just yeah. did not get me at all. It was yeah. very, yeah, I found it very dull. The two books that did come to mind for me are To the Lighthouse by Virginia mm. Woolf, which is so book. much about the sea. And there's that wonderful scene at the end when they row out to the lighthouse finally, which has been this symbol for for a variety of reasons. And it is it is kind of also a book about how we capture both in painting and in literature, the natural world. Um, yeah. And and so I love that book. And then another one I was thinking about actually was um, a book that I loved as a kid called The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle by an author named Avi. Was that a thing? I feel like you've talked about it before, oh, but I, that's when I've heard about it. No, not for ages. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was It was very much a thing amongst like the youths in my circles my circles of youths. I don't know. <laughs> it was very popular. It's published in, uh, I think in 1990 or something like that. But it's a book about a young woman who's very proper. She's sailing from England to America in the 1800s and she gets caught up in this mutiny on board and becomes a kind of sailor. Um, and she convinces them to keep her on and you know not kill her because she climbs to the crow's nest in the ship and kind of proves herself and becomes and becomes this like ship gal. And it's great it's wonderful. Drama. It's so great. It's so great. And I think it really captures the romance, but also the danger of the high seas, um, which I think is is an attraction in books like Master and Commander as well, isn't it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Also, that just makes me think of Pippi Longstocking, mm. who I loved when I was a kid. I had a little fantasy when I was about 17 that when I took this in my year out, my gap year between um, my studies and well, my school and university studies that I, I wanted, I remember announcing to my parents that I wanted to hitch a ride on a basically a banana ship 
to Latin America because I was doing Spanish at university. I wanted to get my Spanish good. And I had this romantic idea that I would get on this boat and I would write and it would be a month. And my my parents were just like, excuse me, (laughs) what do you think you're doing? (laughs) Like, have you considered what it would be like to be stuck on a massive container ship for a month? with you know a crew of seafarers and you a landlubber yeah it would um, be terrible I think it would be pretty terrible yeah it was a classic kind of young romantic dream and I I'm sure was highly influenced by Pippi Longstocking and listen I am not Pippi Longstocking I'm quite soft and like things to be kind of comfortable and you know <laughs> don't yeah. love bananas that much <laughs> I also get extremely seasick, so oh, honey, that's the sucks. sailor's life is not the life for me. Um, I'm I'm all right with seasickness most of the time. I've had a couple of experiences of it, but on the whole, I'm pretty good. But yeah, I I I, I no, I don't think it would have worked out. <laughs> How about you? What what books were you thinking of? I was thinking of the Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge, which I just mm. adore, and it's a a poem I go back to a lot. And I grew up kind of having it read to me and things like that. So that feels like a very sort of feels a bit like my relationship with the sea essentially something that I go back to time and time again and and always offers me something similar obviously I'm going to talk about Melissa Broder's book The Pisces again um, because (laughs) that is a contemporary novel about the sea partly that does something so brilliant with everything we've been talking about you know the kind of romantic attachment to the body of water and also its unknowability and how it can contain all of our unconscious desires and needs and projections. And also it's obviously all about mer people, Polly, and this merman character. And I think that those myths and stories are so fascinating. Mm. I mean, mermaids, that's a whole other show, <laughs> you know? Also, I was thinking about the Odyssey, which is of course a lot about the sea, yeah. an extraordinary text about the sea and the characters that, that we meet there and the, the experience of islands and traveling to islands and what we discover on islands. And then I was thinking of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, which I read when I was young and I remember loving it. And I also realized I remember nothing about it now, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of wild, isn't it? Because it's a long book. But uh, yeah, I really don't remember very much. Uh, I haven't read it, so I can say nothing more. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely about the sea. So I guess... I mean, we've kind of touched on this a bit already, but let's go back to it with more intent. What, (laughs) oh, I sound like my, when I was teaching. (laughs) But what role does the ocean play in literature that you've read? And what role can it play, do you think? Definitely coming back to what we were talking about in terms of the draw of the sea for humans. Um, The ocean represents unknowability and it often does take that role in literature i'm thinking of i was i was thinking about the awakening by kate chopin 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 um she's an american writer so i'm not sure how she would pronounce that but i did did you ever read that no Um, it's sort of a an early classic of feminist literature and i guess i'm spoiling it by saying that at the end the heroine literally walks out into the sea um, mm. and ends her life. And that is a very sad thing. And we're meant to see that as a response to this oppressive society that she lives in and her inability to to kind of live within the life that has been um, forced upon her. But also it is a kind of strange freeing act. And I think that the ocean is the perfect place to to hold that duality, the sort of danger, but also the, the freedom 
Yeah, absolutely. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I hated it when I read it in high school. The arrogance of youth, I think. I, you know, I before I, mean, I, I don't was... know what you're talking about. It's not something I experienced. <laughs> I think I read a lot of books like that thinking, you know, why do I need to understand the feminist struggles of the past? Um, yeah. And didn't think the writing was good enough, you know, because it's a book more about ideas than it is about amazing writing. And I'm sort of ashamed of of the person I was at that time. Oh, my God. Um, Listen, I didn't do English A-level because they were going to study Frankenstein and I thought that was a waste of time. You know, extraordinary arrogance, extraordinary ignorance. Arrogance yeah. and ignorance. Yeah, but yeah. swimming but in I, bioluminescence. So Swimming in bioluminescence, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you, you take one, you can't take the other one as well. I think also, like, if by the time you reach our age, you're not, I mean, shame is a complicated feeling to have, but, like, you're not looking back on yourself at 18 with a modicum of, like, wow, girl, what were you doing? You're kind of, you need to evolve a bit more, I think, probably. Yeah. <laughs> If you still That's back true. yourself as an 18-year-old when you're 35, I think you've That's got a nice some learning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So actually, that was a great thing I just did. I love it. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking when you were talking, I was like, fuck, we've not mentioned The Tempest, you know, the Shakespeare play, yes. um, which is obviously a real masterpiece of the genre um, when the sea is mystical force that brings out all kinds of things in people and and that whole metaphor for you know you the boat represents the thing you think you can control and then the shipwreck is the reality of what it's like to be alive you know and everything every big experience we have basically involves a metaphorical shipwreck I think like I think the experience of love is basically a metaphorical shipwreck again and again and again (laughs) whether it's love with your partner or love with your parents or love with your friends like it's the kind of leap of faith that I think of a sea journey as being really, because you just don't know. It's <laughs> you're interfacing with other people means that you just don't know. Yeah, I, I love that. I think I'm interested though with with literature about the sea or the ocean. I I feel awkward calling it the ocean because the sea around the UK is so much not the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. It's funny, isn't it? But yes, it is an ocean, the ocean. I mean, when I'm in Australia, I'm like, wow, this is definitely the ocean. This is 100% the ocean. But I'm interested to see where literature about these bodies of water takes us in the future, because I think people using the sea and the ocean as metaphor going forward are not going to be able to do it without a consciousness of climate collapse. Mm. Um, And I think that's going to be interesting. I think that there... I think that there will never be a total shift in what the sea and the ocean comes to represent because of its elemental nature and because of its ancients and because it covers so much of the planet. And I wish I could reach for the statistic right now, but I can't. But is there more water than land on the planet? Defin- I mean, definitely. Right. Yes. Definitely. Okay, great. Good, good, good. <laughs> I got a PhD. Did, did you know? <laughs> and it's probably only going to increase, right? With climate crisis, yeah. the water is yeah. coming. I mean, did you hear that there's apparently a wobble in the moon's orbit, which means that in the 2030s, we're going to have extra flooding? Oh, yeah. 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 The, yeah, water, yeah. the water is coming. You're right. The and, water is coming. And like, yeah. I, so I wonder if in the next, let's say, literature of the next 200 years, if the ocean and the sea as symbol will evolve into something different or more menacing or more of a teacher yeah because we've been talking about the kind of danger of the sea but there is a whole other place in literature where the sea and the seaside and the beach are 
you know, very relaxing spaces or places for romance or, you know, and, and the whole, the whole idea of like sea air is actually a a cultural thing. Like you go to the sea to relax, you go to the sea to find yourself. To recuperate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The seaside is like a healing place. Yeah. And maybe we won't really be able to have that in the future. I'm, I'm not sure. That makes me think of the scenes in Elena Ferrante's novels where Lenu goes to Ischia. Yes. And, you know, she she goes to kind of grow into herself, essentially. And then Leela is sent to become more healthy in order to get pregnant. Because in Naples, you know, that the way that they're living, the, the kind of consensus is that you go to the sea and you spend time in, on an island in the sun and your bones get strong and your skin gets tanned and then you're, you know, prime fertile material, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, the sea as a place of recuperation is a bit, I mean, it also makes me think of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Yeah, and you're right, maybe it's going to be gone. Maybe it's, well, I mean, this is, not literature this is this is tv and it's the the that show i've talked about on on this show before the affair that long 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 yeah, tv series your obsession my obsession but the really interesting thing about it is that the place it goes when it moves into the future is to this it's to the sea encroaching because a lot of the affair is set in this coastal place and when the child of the child grows up she is an oceanographer also it's not quite that but she's looking at land slipping into the sea and the sea encroaching and things like that and I thought that was a very interesting place to take it and I feel like that's the the direction that that literature and tv maybe is going to move in because Mm. it can't not it's kind of impossible not to move in that direction when you're thinking about the sea definitely well I mean I think we've nailed that Carrie Plitt I think we've summed it all up I think there's nothing more to be said about the sea or the ocean um, yeah. so <laughs> no consider this a cliffhanger this is definitely a theme we will be returning to I, I would say but for now we'll be back in a minute with some cultural recommendations we will Here we are back again, Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt to tell you about some things we've done recently that we're not reading because we do do things other than reading. Um, So Carrie, tell me, what's your first recommendation? My first recommendation is a four-part series that was on Radio 4 a, a bit earlier and can now be found on BBC Sounds called My Albion. Uh, by Zakia Sewell. Zakia is mixed race. She was raised between London and Wales, and she's also been obsessed with British folk culture from ballads to Morris dancers to kind of Stonehenge from a very early age. And um, in this series, she's thinking about these folk traditions. And I what I really love is she's thinking about these folk traditions, but thinking about them in the context of the kind of wounds of history and Englishness and and English nationalism and asking this big question about like, is there something to be found in English folk traditions that is inclusive, that can include people like her? That means we can look back to a place that is before imperialism and, and find something good that we can all embrace. And it's a really fascinating 
way of thinking about British symbols and nationalism and history. And I think something that people don't talk about that much, like there's almost a kind of cultural embarrassment with, with British folk culture. And I love that this series is taking it really seriously and, and thinking about what we can use from the past to, to kind of look forward to a more utopian future, if that is possible. So I really enjoyed listening. Also, she is a DJ on NTS and you should definitely check out her show. It's called Questing with Zakia. And I think you'd really like it, Octavia, because it's very psychedelic. Hey, (laughs) it sounds right on my street. Yeah. Also that podcast series sounds brilliant really yeah, brilliant really good. especially I mean where I've just been in the Y Valley it's like imbued with folk history and I would love to yeah fascinating because it's the border it's right on the border with Wales yes and she talks about Wales and England as well um which is really interesting and and the sort of history of that and Welshness as an identity as compared to Englishness as an identity and Ooh, small that's countries and nationalism it's really good a brilliant brilliant recommendation thank you what, what is what is your recommendation my first one is this French detective show called The Bureau that I am now obsessed with, which lots of brilliant people told me that I would enjoy. And they were all absolutely right. And I'm deep into season two and completely hooked. Um, it's great. It treads just the right line for me between quite intense drama and humor and almost a bit soap opera-y, especially in the first season where this kind of clandestine relationship takes up quite a lot of space. It's now getting quite a bit more gnarly but it's done the ground, it's kind of prepped the groundwork for that. So I'm, I doesn't feel exploitative, I guess. And one of the lead roles is played by an actor and director called Matteo Kasowitz, who is so talented. He directed um, the film in the 90s called La N, which yeah, a lot of people saw. Which I watched which, in French class. Right. And is an incredible piece of work. Um, and he brings, he brings a lot to this character. He plays an agent who's basically gone a bit rogue, gone a lot rogue, let's say. Um, <laughs> And he plays it as a kind of commentary on that very particular brand of toxic masculine role model, but he does it incredibly subtly. So at first you're very swept up in it. And then over the course of the series, you're like, oh wait, this guy's a solipsistic asshole. (laughs) Wow. And then I think the journey probably takes us back into a romantic relationship with him. I'll see. I'm curious to see where it goes. But yeah, it's, it's great. It's just great. It's very easy to lose yourself in and um it's pacey enough and if you're a lover of thrillers like me it's it's giving me what i need from it you know sounds great and yeah i needed another series to hold my attention so it's doing it nice yeah Yeah. and also after call my agent i just really want to watch french tv french tv is very good it didn't used to be that good (laughs) (laughs) i lived there but it's really really very good now i think what's your next one Well, my second recommendation will probably be irrelevant by the time the show has been broadcast when the weather has turned inevitably, but, (laughs) (laughs) and it's a really stupid recommendation because for some reason, I think I've just been going out and I haven't done that much cultural stuff, but basically we bought a paddling pool last weekend when it got hot and it's the best thing ever. So (laughs) if you're thinking about it, um, and it's still hot or it gets hot at some point can really recommend I've just been enjoying dipping my toes in I came back really sweaty from playing football last night and I just jumped in and it was so it felt so great it's a way of cooling down but it's also a way of of connecting with the child within and I've really been enjoying it so, and just putting yeah. your body in a body of water yeah putting your body in water 
very always topical. Good. It always sounds good. amazing. <laughs> I wish we could, we couldn't really fit a paddling pool on our balcony, unfortunately, but <laughs> but maybe you could. Think maybe I should it. just try. Um, <laughs> What's your last recommendation? My last one is the Paula Rigo exhibition at Tate Britain, which I went to yesterday uh, with my mum, and it is. Oh my God, it's so extraordinary. If you can get to London to see it, if you're in the UK, it's, I would say, definitely worth the trip. But if you can't, the catalogue is genuinely one of the best I've seen in terms of the quality of the reproductions and the faithfulness of the colours and printing and stuff. So if you can't get to it, you can get your hands on a catalogue. It's really, really worth it. She's just the most colossal talent and seeing work from across her career brought together like this, I love it when it's a proper fulsome kind of retrospective and you can see how someone's style developed and you can see how their relationship to the materials changed so she begins in in oils she's always done illustrations in inks but she ends up in pastels and watching the change in energy between the oil paintings and the pastels and she talks about how she found working with oil pastels so liberating because she had a much more physical relationship with the canvases and she could be much more aggressive with the color marks and the, the way she was making shape and you see it it's that Oh, they're just so phenomenal. And she has a real, you know, profoundly political feminist and kind of egalitarian view of the world. And she goes headlong towards the difficult subjects. There's a room at the end that's all about female genital mutilation. Wow. And she's just, yeah, powerhouse, extreme talent. Really, really, really worth it. That sounds great. I really need to go to a museum. I haven't, I haven't been to any yet. I don't know what's stopping me. The sunshine, darling. It's cool. The weather will turn and then you'll be like, okay, let's go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. That's right. And we will be back after our summer break. And we hope that you guys all have a fabulous summer or if you're in Australia, winter. And the next full show, as I said, will be an ACE rerun from the archives. And then we will be back in September for our show with Sean Fay. So until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt. And this is Literary Friction. <laughs> I love how you included the Australians there. That was very nice. I'm always thinking about the Australians. You are. <laughs> <laughs>